Um, so our first Bible reading tonight, good evening everyone, is on page 8 from Acts 10 verses 1 to 23. At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all of his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day, at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? he asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. About noon the following day, they were on their journey and approaching the city. Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, We have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into his house to be his guests. Uh, Our second reading is Galatians 2 verses 11 to 21. When Cephas came to Anitoch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles, because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of all of them, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, 
but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for Christ. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Thanks, Victoria. So, um, didn't mean to sneak up then. Oops. Um, so those two passages uh, are read, read side by side. The thing you need to know is that Simon, who's called Peter, is also called Cephas or Kephas, depending on how you pronounce it. Um, so it's about the same person, Peter. And uh, in the first one, is it, Peter's a Jew, right? Which means you don't eat with Gentiles. That's the bottom line. You don't eat with Gentiles. A bunch of other rules that make, make you kosher. And, um, but in that first reading, God sort of shows Peter that God's got a, a way of looking at the Torah and a way of looking at uh, non-Jews in a new way through the life of Jesus Christ. And so that first reading is God getting through Peter's mind. You can eat with... Gentiles, and he does that right at the very end of the passage. He invites a Gentile into his home. And he did that because of the gospel, not just because it seemed nice, but because of the gospel. And we'll come to that in a moment. But uh, we find out later that he had a momentary lapse of reason. He ended up excluding Gentiles who were trusting in Jesus. And we're going to see how destructive that is in just a moment's time. Hey, personal word first. Um, so, uh, um, my wife and I have got our 18th wedding anniversary uh, in a couple of weeks' time, and it's coincided with me being invited to speak at a retreat, a Rivendell, uh, in, in Washington State, in the United States. So the church is uh, allowing me to go and speak, and on either side of that uh, speaking engagement, my wife and I are taking some holidays uh, on a lake in Idaho in spring in America. God bless America. And uh, so we'll be away for about 12, 13 days and back for Rivendell. So we'll be here and, uh, and bubbling at Rivendell. Looking forward to seeing you there. And then uh, we've got about a month back here and then, and then we're taking long service leave with, with my family. Also in the States, wife's American. That's the piece of information you need to know, or at least a dual citizen. So we'll be away for a couple of weeks here for a month and then, and then gone for a few more weeks. So we'll let you more, know more about that. But thanks for letting us go. That's all I'm saying. I'm going to pray. And then we'll um, look at this passage together. Father, we pray that tonight uh, and each day we might be not like Peter. <laughs> we pray that our hearts and our minds and our actions might be in step with the truth of the gospel, not found out of step with the truth of the gospel. In fact, may our lives and the gospel be aligned and centered, powerful at work in we who believe. Amen. So, my text today is a dozen words in verse 14, page 9. Verse 14, Paul writes, When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, when they were unaligned with the truth of the gospel, 
I said to Peter or Kephas in front of them all, etc., etc. So there's my text today. Uh, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, it's possible to be unaligned. Now that, passage, that text exists in a context, this, these 10 or 11 verses, that's so packed with goodness. It's so packed with goodness. And I'm hoping that I explain it in a way now that makes some sense to you, especially if you're visiting today or you're part of the marriage course and the Bible is relatively new to you, the wedding preparation course. So I'm hoping that we make some sense today. Um, you know, right on the prayer cards, not just a prayer, but my prayer is that I'll, I'll start to understand what the, that, that guy up the front is saying, and that'll, that'll be helpful. Andrew will pray for that too, if that's helpful. A story before we begin. My wife and I, my wife and I are not uh, business class types. Well, we might be the type, I don't know. But we don't ever do it for the same reasons that you don't. In fact, only once uh, uh, have we got business class in a flight from the United States, where she's from, uh, back to Australia. But we didn't earn it. Let me explain. Uh, my wife and I are friends with a marketing manager of a low-cost carrier in the United States, and he was kindly getting us from Atlanta to LA on a complimentary flight. Uh, and when we got to LA, we were met at the gate by the low-cost carrier's manager at LAX, who carried our bags and called us Mr. and Mrs. Moffat and fawned over us, and we're not sure what's going on. He logged us into the Qantas lounge, and we sat there and waited until we were called for business class. And we're like, wow, sweet. Right, we got on the plane, and we turned left. We never turn left. Large seats. Uh, we had a baby at the time, um, our firstborn, and we had the bassinet, which was like three meters away. That's perfect, really, if you're on a plane with a baby. I ordered the steak rare. Now, how do we get it? The answer is by grace. Well, by accident, really. Unintended grace. But grace insofar as that it was a gift we didn't earn or deserve. The day after we got back, we found out by a string of emails that we had been confused with another family. <laughs> the guy at LA had only heard the family combination, Aussie guy, Australian uh, wife, and a little baby. The guy at LAX said, uh, you know, I know who that is. They flew in last month. Uh, I recognise that combination of family. He, th he thought who we were. He said, she, my wife, she is the daughter of an NBC news anchor that favours the airline. Not true, by the way. But we were happy for it not to be true because he did a deal with Qantas, who looked after us. After the deals were done, after we'd flown, uh, we could see the errors on the string of emails. The second last one said, package delivered, good job, team. <laughs> the last one was from our marketing manager friend who wrote, thank you. <laughs> job well done. <laughs> Business class is an interesting thing, isn't it? To turn, I know the different configuration of planes, I get that, but to turn left rather than right. It's so stark. And if you turn left, or make it to business, it means you've paid for it or you've earned it, points, for example, or someone's given it to you. But there's such a divide, isn't there, really? Some turn right, squeeze in, some turn left, have the room. Some get the foul food, some order their steak rare. Some don't sleep, some sleep reclining. 
What I find interesting is that that divide, left and right, I find it interesting there's an actual curtain. They dare to have an actual curtain, and usually it's grey. How drab. Now stay with me here, because I want to show you what the grace of God is like. Grace is when everyone on the plane gets treated like they're in business class. Everyone. Whether they deserve it or earned it or not. Because in the Christian worldview, nobody earns it. I'm a good guy, has no currency in the Christian worldview. And have any currency, not, not if God is holy. But in God's world, what's interesting is there's no economy, there's not even business. Everybody is in first class. So if you're in Christ on board, you see, there's only grace. Everyone is there by gift that's received. Not you're there because you deserve it. It's the gift, of course, of freedom, redemption in Christ through his blood, bread and wine. And so that means that they can only be first class in the church of God because no one's earned it. No one deserves to be right with God. There's a lovely line in the baptism service which says that we receive in the salvation, we receive that which by nature we cannot have. You don't get it because you're born. What that means is there can be no pride. Today we're going to learn that that can easily be forgotten. You can live like there still is a divide. You can speak like you're better than others. You can act as though there are people in economy, even when you know the truth, that your life can be unaligned. Meaning you can be clear on the truth and believe it, and yet betray the truth by your actions. There's a sense in which we all do this regularly. There's a sense in which that's in fact the stuff of life. And the process of following Jesus is the process of alignment. My actions with the truth of the Christian gospel or message. But today, Peter or Cephas or Kephas, he does something which undermines the entire Christian message and begins to destroy it. You'll see that in a moment. So my text today is Galatians 2 verse 14. Apostle Paul wrote about Peter, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, there it's possible by the way, and awful, and to be unaligned, but when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, you're a Jew, yes, and yet you live like a Gentile, that's good, because you've been freed, and not like a Jew, we learned that in Acts chapter 10, so how is it then that you're forcing the non-Jews to follow Torah, our Jewish kosher rules? Why are you treating the non-Jews, who are Christians, as second class, uh, and they should be like us, in first class? Why did you do that when you know the truth? So, outline today, which is on page nine, is two points I want to make to get into the text, then explore it with three questions. So, two points, clear thinking, I want to talk about that, and aligned living. The reason I want both clear thinking and aligned living is that Peter has clear thinking, you're going to see that from verses 15 through 21, but not aligned living. He's unaligned and his behavior is white anting the gospel. You know what white ants are? Little things, termites. They get in, they, the whole building can fall down. And you look at Paul, Peter, you know, he does one small thing. You think it's small, it's taken apart the house of the gospel. 
So firstly, clear thinking, verses 15 through 21. Paul in verse 15 says that we know something. Verse 15, look at it, verse 15. We who are Jews by birth are not Gentile sinners. I think he's being a bit cheeky there. We who have always been Jewish, we know, verse 16, that a person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, or maybe by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. We're clear about that. I think Paul's being cheeky. All Jews by birth, if they read their scriptures, would know this truth that Abraham simply believed God and received righteousness or justification. And he believed God and God said, you're, you're right with me all before the Torah came, all before kosher was a thing. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, by the Jewish Torah, but rather by faith in Jesus Christ. We're clear on that. Now, for those who don't know, to be justified means to be right with God, and not everybody is. To be right with God or squared up with Him. Um, not going to hell, even though I deserve it. To be justified is to be vindicated. Declared to be in the right, even though I'm in the wrong, even though I'm a sinner. And it comes through the blood of Jesus Christ, because God absorbs the sin, the wrath, the muck, the injustice. He absorbs it all. That's what we remember in a few moments' time. We're clear on that. It doesn't come because you're a Jew. It doesn't come because you're an Aussie. It doesn't come because you're middle class. It doesn't come because you're religiously observant. It doesn't come because you're self-justified, because you tell yourself you're a good guy. We know it comes through faith in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. We trust in his work. So we who are right with God are treated by God as first class, welcomed, embraced. And we're treated as first class because of someone else. Not um, because we're confused with someone else, like my business class fiasco. <laughs> or like the Netflix series, The Good Place, if you've binged. We're right with God because God is full of love, a particular kind of love. He's full of grace that moves him to send Christ to die so that I can be forgiven, justified, right with God. So we're given a gift in Christ. And in Christ, in that place, chapter 3, verse 28, there isn't Jew or Gentile, no divide. There's no slave or free. You can see how this began to change the world. Neither is there male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That sort of order of who's important and who's not, all gone. All equal. No one turns to the left or to the right, because if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs, all of you, according to the promise. You're all in first class. Now you see that, don't you? And we believe that, not just because we're Protestants emphasizing grace, unlike, you know, Bad Roman Catholics who say it's you know, turning up the church or saying confession. or It's not just that we believe in some doctrine, you know, faith alone through Christ alone. No, we believe it because it's life to the, to the dead bodies. You know, it's oxygen to my soul. It's living water is truth. Verses 17 and 18, Paul answers an objection. 
if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jewish people find ourselves among the sinners because we're eating with non-Jews, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? If we find ourselves eating with the wrong sorts, does that mean that we're defiling the kingdom? Classic Phariseeism, read the Gospels. And Paul says, heck no, absolutely not. Verse 18, if I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. He's playing around with words there. It's a bit complicated, but stay with me for a second. The word lawbreaker there sort of comes from the word to jump ship. Um, you know, the, the, the people who are applying pressure on Peter to not eat with Jews because it's not kosher, because you're ruining the religion. You know, they're saying, you've jumped ship, Peter. You know, you're eating with Gentiles. But Paul is saying here, if I put Torah back into the justification equation, if I rebuild what I destroyed, if I put the shackles back on, then I'm the one that's jumped the ship. I've jumped the grace ship. And then in verse 19, he gets personal. Not just in your head, this clear thinking, but it's also in your heart and your life. Verse 19, through the law, I died of the law that I might live for God. You know, through the story, the Torah, through the story of Judaism, it was always in the intention of Judaism to give up Torah that I might live for God, be animated by a life for God. It's why he says in verse um, 16, we too have put our faith in Christ so that we can be justified by faith, the faith of Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law, no one is right with God. In other words, the life of Jesus has changed everything for me, which is why we're doing four minutes of grace. Nothing is the same now that I know Christ. So you get this most personal remark of Paul. Make it your own. Verse 20, please look at it. Please use your eyes. Look down at verse 20 on page 9. I'm going to get you to say it at the end of this time. We're going to conclude our service with it. Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. God took me to the tomb with Jesus and dealt with my sin. and He raised me up again so I no longer live. Not me, self, but Christ lives in me. I've been crucified with Christ, so I no longer live. It's not me as self, but rather I'm animated by Christ who lives in me. So the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, the Son who loved me and gave himself for me. That's really my favorite verse in the whole Bible. The life I now live in Sydney, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. There's four seconds of grace right there. Therefore, verse 21, conclusion, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. But he died for something. He died for you. So verses 15 to 21 is clear thinking, but we also need aligned living, because Paul writes, when I saw something going on, I called it. Now, this is the interesting bit. Okay, stay with me. Interesting bit. Peter, Kephas, uh, when he came to Antioch, um, Peter, Paul, opposed him face to face. Because when Peter came to interact between Jew and non-Jew, he believed the truth in his mind. He really did. He knew that God's work in Jesus had taken down that, that drab grey curtain between Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female. 
He knew that God was accepting people without kosher laws or curtains. He knew that they could eat their bacon and cheeseburger even though it was not kosher. They could chow down their pork. They could leave their boys uncircumcised even though the Jewish Torah demanded circumcision because they just trusted Jesus and they realized that they had life animated by his spirit. Christ in me, there's no second class, no economy, not even business. For Peter in Acts 10, God had given him a vision to help to see the truth so that Acts 10 verse 23, Peter invited the men into his house to be his guests. He ate with them. So he knew the truth. God had got it into him. But he withdrew from the Gentiles. He began to draw back slowly. That's how it happens. And separate himself from the Gentiles. He sent them right. As though they were economy class. And put up a drab grey curtain. He wouldn't eat with them. He sent them to the other room. The non-kosher one. Back at the church. Too hard. Now, that might have not been particularly unusual. It's not like Jews didn't do kosher for a thousand years. But in effect, it white-handed the gospel. It was small, but it was tearing down the house. In fact, it robbed the gospel of power. Paul says, that's a different gospel. It's anathema. It's amazing how you can betray the gospel with something as ordinary as who you eat with. I'm important, they're not. You, see. you can betray the gospel by, by that thought. Eugene Peterson wrote in a lovely way, most people most of the time are not in crisis. If pastoral work is to represent the gospel and develop a life of faith in the actual circumstances of life, it must learn to be at home in what novelist William Golding has termed the ordinary universe, like eating who you eat with, the everyday things in people's lives, getting kids off to school, gospel has to be lived there, deciding what to have for dinner, dealing with the daily droning of complaints of work associates, you know, watching Netflix at night, making small talk at coffee break. In the everyday of life, Peter had created a second class in the church of God who was unaligned with the truth that he knew. And we all do that to some degree. So let me conclude before we take bread and wine by asking and answering three questions. Number one, why did he do it? Why did he separate from the Gentiles? Verse 12. What was his reason? Secondly, what are the consequences? Verse 13. And thirdly, what do we then do about it? Pick the reason why. Separates from the Gentiles. The answer is fear. Verse 12. Fear, pressure. Verse 12. For before certain men came from James, they may or may not have had James's backing, Peter used to eat with the non-Jews. You know, trusting Christ, animated by his spirit, you're right with God, your boys aren't circumcised, we're eating pork, we believe in Christ, we're all going to heaven, we all have the same embrace. But when the men arrived, he began to draw back and slowly separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. We do lots of dumb things. Because we're afraid. And so there it is. He bends to the pressure. The pressure, by the way, comes like this. Hey, we're a traditional culture. Don't you know the Bible says it? Right? Not understanding that there's a narrative in the Bible. 
and those kosher laws come, you know, a quarter of the way in the story. There's a fulfillment for those laws in Jesus Christ, which means that they have to be read back into that story. But these are out, these are in the Bible, these commands about circumcision and the like. If you go eating with non-Jews, you're desecrating our traditions, you're destroying our good thing, you're, you're white-handing the building by eating with Gentiles and you're being rude about our traditions. Don't do that, don't do that. Pressure was brought to bear and Peter got afraid. It's time not to be afraid. It's time to say the gospel gives me a power, Christ in me. Secondly, what are the consequences? There are, you can imagine very quickly, consequences are like this. The non-Jews who believed in Jesus and were on board and were like, this is the greatest thing in the world to have the hope that we have, suddenly they're being shoved out into the back table. What do they hear? I'll tell you what they hear. They hear it's not enough to believe in Jesus. We better go and, you know, get the snip. We better start reading the Jewish things and start doing them. They suddenly start to hear the narrative that they're not fully in. There are consequences, for example, if you treat people poorly on Facebook, on social media. They really are. There are consequences when you think that someone else is weird or uncool. People are affected by the little, ordinary things you do in everyday life. You look down on others. You lie because you think someone doesn't deserve the truth or you get rude or manipulative, worse. You think it doesn't affect others. Perhaps you don't think you're that important in people's lives. But look at verse 13. Peter out of pressure, withdraws. In verse 13, the other Jewish Christians joined Peter in this hypocrisy so that by their combined hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. You know, Barnabas is an encouraging sort of fellow who um, even he said, okay, you know, I get the reasoning. Your actions carry weight. They really do. And an unaligned life can destroy people who are trying to live aligned lives like Barnabas. So you've got to ask yourself, the question, when I act this way, are there Barnabases that are hurting? But it comes through self-justification. You know, look, we were right. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian, wrote, self-justification and judging others go together. You sort of, I'm a good guy, that'll end up really with I'm judging others. In the same way that justification by grace and serving others goes together. Why? Because you don't deserve it. God has showered you with is grace, so you shower others with grace. So third and finally, what to do about it? The answer is, by the way, oh, we'll come to that. Stand up. Not now. Metaphorically. <laughs> I love how Paul stands up to Kephas, to Peter. You don't have to do it like Paul, by the way. There's a public thing going on here. When Kephas came to Antioch, I opposed him face to face. And when I saw that the whole crew were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Kephas, to Peter, in front of all of them. Now, I'm not recommending this approach. I think the withdrawing was public, and so the rebuke had to be public. 
um, the withdrawing white end of the gospel and Paul had to actually rebuke them to say what the gospel really is, that we are eating together. But I do think that when you see an unaligned life, you need to call it out. So we need wisdom to know when something is unaligned. And perhaps we can say that. We don't want to just go, that's sin, because it's actually it's unaligned. And sometimes you need someone to tell you, by the way. I go to an art gallery, and I look up at a painting that's famous, and I'll say, I don't even get why it's famous. My wife, my, Laurel's pretty good at this stuff, and she'll say, look at the light here, or see the dance of play over here, or and suddenly, wow, I'll see things I've never seen before. And if we're living an unaligned life, and this, you, can, you can do this. You can say to somebody, can I show you how that's unaligned? But more importantly, and most importantly, we need to model grace. We need to receive Christ, which is what the bread and wine is all about. And then show people that it's personal, not just religious. Not just the adoption of values. Look at verse 20 and make it your own. I want, to say, I want you to say it with me, by the way. Look at verse 20. So you have to pull out your zine. Look at verse 20. In fact, let's say it together. Don't feel compelled. If, you, if this is not your words, don't say it. Just listen to others say it. We won't mind. But I want to say it together. And make it your own. Together. Let's together say verse 20. Ready? I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body... I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Make it your own. Karl Barth said, grace must find expression in life, otherwise it is not grace. So if you can show what forgiveness looks like in a marriage, show what grace looks like in a workplace, if you can show what wisdom looks like in complex decisions, what hope looks like when you're suffering, if you can show what following Jesus looks like when you're being bumped, if you can show what trusting looks like in the middle of the storm, if you can show what grace alone looks like by your arms of embrace, it will adorn the gospel. It will not white-hand it. I'm going to pray. In fact, I want to leave um, some silence and get you to ponder what it is that you've learned. Perhaps think about where the unaligned life or living is. Perhaps uh, you want to take the prayer card out and and write on it. (laughs) Perhaps you can frame up your thinking in terms of a prayer Father, show us your grace now. There is strength in sorrow. And show us what we need to change. There is beauty in our Do that in the power of your spirit. Give you some time to think.